writing songs and putting them out there into the world is serious business. When you think about a song as a vehicle and what that vehicle can carry, a song can be a very, very important medium for spreading the message. For example, it can remind institutionalized power where true power lies, that is with the people. That was the singer, songwriter, and good Irish lad, Hozier, speaking of the power of song. And if you're at all invested in music, maybe it's something you've given some thought to. How can songs change the world? Or, I guess even more fundamentally, can songs change the world? Welcome to This Is Pop, the podcast, a podcast dedicated to This Is Pop, an eight-part docuseries by Banger Films exploring 70 years of pop music, now streaming on Netflix. My name is John Semley, and I am your host. And in this episode, we're going to be asking some big questions. Questions like, what even are songs? Are they messages? Rallying cries? Methods of escape from the conditions of the world as it is? Can they, in the immortal words of Public Enemy, fight the powers that be? How can pop and politics mix? What exactly can a song do? It's a tricky question, and director Lisa Rideout sets out to answer it in an episode of This Is Pop devoted to protest music and the power of song. Throughout the episode, which is called What Can a Song Do?, Lisa discovers different answers to this question. What a song does can depend on the era as well as the artist and their ambitions. Some seek to leverage their fame to call attention to causes, others see songs as flashpoints of cultural change. So, what can a song do? Maybe the real question is, what can it do? We'll be talking about all of that in this episode of This Is Pop, the podcast. We are joined by Lito Pimienta. Lito is a Colombian-born and Toronto-based musician and interdisciplinary artist. She has performed, exhibited, and curated around the world. In 2018, her album La Papesa won the Polaris Music Prize for the Best Canadian Album. And in 2020, she was nominated for the Best Latin Rock Slash Alternative Album of the Year at the Latin Grammy Awards. That was for her most recent album, Miss Columbia. Lido, what a list of accomplishments. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Now... We're going to be talking a bit about protest music as it pertains to this episode of the This Is Pop documentary series. And I guess I wanted to know from you, what comes to mind when you think of protest music? You know, do you think there are any core ingredients that are present in all types of protest songs or protest music? Well, I mean, I'm from a place where protest happens all the time and where a lot of bodies and a lot of communities um even if they're singing about flowers and rainbows there's uh there's revolution and there's um a cry for um visibility within them so i think i come from that especially in afro-colombian or traditional indigenous music um so that's that's what i that's what i think about you know, when when we think about protest songs or 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 protest music, because it's very real and it's a music that is alive, very alive right now. And, and, and I mean, I don't know how people are, how aware people are about it. But like right now, Colombia is going through a huge revolution right now with the youth and, and, and indigenous folks and black people really uniting together 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's just like another day at the house, you know, when we talk about any kind of <laughs> protest or any kind of, of songs that are going to uplift and are going to bring conscious and love and resistance, you know? So that's where I come from for sure. Lito, can you tell us a bit about the nature of that protest movement in Colombia for listeners who aren't paying attention to it? Yes, of course. Um, it started earlier in the year when the government um, wanted to implement uh, a new tax bill in, in, in which they were taxing on basic, um, just basic grocery, grocery items, which of course would, it was a tax that was affecting um, lower middle, middle class and lower income uh, people. Um, which also means that it affects people like students um, who, you know, even though they're getting themselves in debt to go to school, they don't have a guarantee of having work outside of school or when they're done school. So students um, and basically the entire country got together and we're still, we're calling, I mean, it's called El Paro Nacional, which is a national strike where I mean, the, the country stopped, roads are closed, um, and um, people are really just fed up because we, we have, and this is not a joke, Colombia is the most corrupted country in the entire world. So it comes to a point where, I mean, my generation is so fed up with it, and our generation is also not afraid um, as our parents or our grandparents w w were, you know, like we really, we just, we don't know peace. We don't know what that's like. So a lot of folks are just basically like, you know, I rather die fighting and I rather, you know, protest and be in the streets and try to change something for my future, for my present. So that's what's going on. So if people want to know more about it, they just, you can just hashtag or find the hashtag SOS Columbia and then you're going to see the devastation, the revolution, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful all of it that is um that's Colombia you know in a nutshell no i think with i mean at least for me when i hear the term protest music i have like very old fashioned ideas like it's like early 60s bob dylan like guys with guitars mm -hmm. and little choo choo train conductor hats and stuff like that and is, is there a difference in your mind between protest music where you know the the lyrics or the subject of the songs are kind of explicitly political or socially connected, or can sometimes just singing or just gathering be a form of protest? I mean, are those different traditions? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really grow up with Bob Dylan, you know, like like Bob Dylan and 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 adjacent, you know, music. It came to me, you know, such later in my twenties, you know, when I when I moved to Canada, that I was exposed to that because. I mean, it's not like I wasn't exposed to Western music or music from the United States or Europe, but the stuff that I was listening to was more in the metal and punk scenes. So, um, which to me, it's very different. Uh, sorry, very similar to um, like Afro-Colombian music, which is like trance. It's like the original trance. And it's a lot of nuance. And, it, and, it, and, it's, a, and it's songs that are, that are composed and written almost in code. They're almost, yeah, it's almost like codes so that the master or the slave master doesn't know that he's being mocked or that we know what he's, what he's doing. 
So a lot of the tradition in this tradition and a lot of these rhythms is all about um, hiding, you know, your rage, you know, and expressing it with dance around the fire or in the fields or in the plantation. So that music and that tradition keeps keeps going and it's uh, and it's and it's shown and it's performed orally. And that's the tradition that I grew up with. So for me, even in the music that I make, I feel like a lot of people like right now in Colombia, people are using my songs from my latest album, Miss Colombia. People are using it in the protests. And I know this because I get videos sent, you know, daily of my songs being used in the protests. And when I was writing them, I wasn't really writing thinking I want people to use this song for a protest. But because the, the things that I sing about resonate so much with, you know, youth, you know, our anxieties, mothers, our anxieties, um, it, it makes people feel like they can that they can sing them along and feel somewhat empowered and somewhat heard, you know. So I feel like a pop song can be a, a protest song, you know, like a, like a like a bubblegum pop song. Like depending on what you're what you're saying, you know, and and the intention behind it, then we can call them uh, protest songs, you know. And um, I think too, once once you know, technology is so readily available and it's so accessible, people are learning more and more, right? Like people are really learning about situations, about realities, about how they can be, how they can be um, understood and heard and, and enlightened. So I don't know, maybe that's why music is such a important language. And it's the language that I, that I use to communicate because sometimes words and just talking isn't enough, you know, but the music just has a way to travel and inspire people. So it's 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 a beautiful and necessary thing to to think about that change a bit do you think that there's something that happens when a political song becomes a pop song you know becomes a pop hit does the meaning kind of morph or change or is it just able to to reach more ears and more people i mean it really depends right it's just like you have a song like wap you know and like to me that song it means revolution. <laughs> but for other women, you know, other feminists, like like other feminist friends of mine, they're just like, no, that's not, that song is horrible, you know? So it really is in the eye of the beholder and it really, you know, adjusts to your personal context, you know? Um, it is funny though, you know, like some songs, like some of like Rage Against the Machine songs, you know, it's like so funny when you see like the, the quote unquote, like bros, <laughs> You know, wearing a like a Che Guevara song, uh, T-shirt, and then like singing Rage Against the Machine songs, but then they'll say stuff like, "I love Che Guevara, the guy from Peru." It's just like, what, what? <laughs> you didn't do your research, <laughs> you know? And that happens so, so many times, you know. I remember growing up playing hockey, and there'd be guys in the dressing room wearing clothes from the Gap who would be singing along to Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. Who at the time had a video making fun of, you know, sweatshop labor and things like that. Yeah. But maybe you just don't have a sense of irony when you're a 13 year old boy. Yeah, you don't have a sense of irony. And it's also, you know, like sometimes we're really rough on ourselves and we're really rough and hard on, on society when we're just like a bunch of people that are 
feathered to the system you know like we're not a corporation you know it's just like where else are you gonna buy your clothes like are you gonna buy your clothes from a from a designer that you know had uh you know italian couturiers making this expensive 200 t-shirt that where the people got paid fairly like no we don't have that money we have to buy at the freaking gap or old navy or whatever though you know where people buy their clothes you know Not everyone is comfortable buying secondhand clothes from the Value Village or whatever, you know. So, like, we just have to have patience for one another. Like, that's something that I've learned, you know. I just, I've, I've lived, I feel like I've lived so many lives. And that's something that I've come to understand. It's just, like, sometimes we're so hard on our neighbors. We're so hard on, you know, the people around us. But sometimes it's just the way that it's set up. And at least we... If we're if we recognize it and we're in the process of unlearning all these things, then then that's good, you know. Like, what? I don't have billions of dollars. Like, I can't control anything. I don't have a say, you know. Like, in so many parts of the world, wherever I go to visit, I I don't even belong to my own body, you know. And that's not um, like society's fault. It's just like there are systems, ancient systems, you know, that are in place that make sure that things are not really balanced you know so but it's still funny you know and my son is 13 years old now so i know there's gonna be a lot of oxymorons happening <laughs> but it's my it's my job to let him know you know when he's uh when he's been a little when he's being wrong you know like it's 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 you know my 10 year old he we're always he you know he um he doesn't understand my, my why i don't like police for example But he's 10 years old because so he's growing up with all these cartoons where they are idolizing police officers, you know, and they look so cool with their guns and their things and da 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 da. da. So it's like, how do you shape the mind of a 10 year old boy, you know, that he's everything that's catered to him is is violent, you know? So it's it's about that, you know? So it, it's 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 my job to help him, you know, gear him in the in the in what I believe it's the right direction, you know? But doing it with patience, you know, and doing it with love, you know. Now, I, I'm wondering, just kind of more broadly speaking, on the subject of protest music, what are your thoughts on the role of, you know, contemporary protest music, especially in today's political climate? I mean, in North America, even during the pandemic, we saw, uh, you know, a real buzz and flurry of revolutionary activity of protest against the president with George Floyd, with Black Lives Matter. What role do you think music can kind of play in, in giving shape to this experience or in catalyzing this political energy i mean music is great um and people for the most part are really great and people really want to help but you also do see a lot of people that are doing it for clout and you also see people interested in joining a movement like black lives matter which which is not a perfect movement either you know what i mean like i just feel like I like to be an individual that does her research. And I like to be an individual that's about what I do with intention and with with truth, you know. The thing about music is that there's also this thing called the music industry. And a lot of people get thrown into situations that they don't even know about, you know. So, okay, great, Trump is gone, but the issues remain. You know, kids are still in cages 
and black people are still uh, being harassed. You know, Israel is still bombing Palestine. You know what I mean? Like uh, Canadian mining is still exploiting Colombia. You know, like all of the issues continue, you know, but it's like because there's not a vocal white supremacist, like totally out of the closet white supremacist uh, uh, as, as the president of the one of the most uh, the most important country in the world and the reason why the usa it's so important is because they have military bases everywhere that's why they're relevant you know and and the military bases are still everywhere you know like they still have a heavy hand and who gets elected as president in central america you know so it's just like it, it's all about context but it's just like i now we don't really see people like it's just kind of like oh biden's president everything's nice no, things are still horrible, you know, but that's why you shouldn't really be just like when people, you know, with sports, you know, it's just like people hate band bandwagon. Uh, is that what they call it? Ba- bandwagon fans, right? Yeah, bandwagon jumping. Yeah. So yeah. to me, it's just like that's how I look at a lot of people in the music industry. It's just kind of like. Where were you 10 years ago? Because I feel like I've been singing about the same thing for the last decade. You know, but now they're gone. Poof, they're gone, you know. And I feel like now, because it's pride now, you know, everyone is coming out. Everyone, you know, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of like it's the same thing. It's just like people want to be loved and accepted and people want to make money. So you mix those two things and it can get very dangerous. So that's why, you know, I try not to be a part of any groups, but the Little Pimienta group, baby, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's. Uh, Do you think that that latter impulse, you know, the desire to make money, you mentioned pride. And yesterday I saw a commercial that was like, say the word pride into your TV remote <laughs> to sh- celebrate pride. It's like, what? I'm celebrating pride by just yes. saying the word <laughs> in a room by myself into my TV yeah. remote. It's like something of a sci-fi movie. But do you think that, you know, that culture around that, the the desire to make money, that it can remove protest music from its context, that it can kind of strip it of its political potential. Is that something that you see happening? It happens all the time. It happens all the, that's the thing. It's just like, it, 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 it loses, like, that's why I'm very careful, even when people come, like, when people introduce me as an activist, I'm just like, I'm not an activist. Like, is the bar that low? Like, the bar must be in the, in hell's basement for me to be considered an activist. You know what I mean? And that's the danger of it. It's just like, like people are, people take this little title so lightly and, and, and they just want to be recognized as the saviors of the world with such little effort, you know? It's just like, that's why I stay away from, from that. And, like, I know people use my songs in protest, and that's my biggest pride, especially when people do it in Colombia. Because I know that when I write my songs, I'm not thinking about selling records. Like, I am always surprised when anything good happens with my music because I don't... The intention of, like, being famous or making money... That's not what I do. Like with my artwork, though, huh, let me tell you, buy my paintings. I want to be rich off my paintings. But in music, music is a meditation for me. I feel like I am this channel, this angel, this filter for messages that come from a higher place. You know, that has nothing to do with money. 
that has nothing to do with it's still a job and I still there's a job that I have to do and I like it you know when I am able to have a bigger platform so that I can shed light on things that I'm interested in especially you know water rights and 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 wanting land back for indigenous people you know that's nice and I try to like keep it very real with that but I'm that's that doesn't make me an activist you know and so I just feel like people need to have more self-awareness just have be more self-aware because money and 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 protest like that's just two different things it's just two different things you know like it's just it's just what it is it's just two different things you know like you can and the moment that you're using both like you know hopefully if it's if it inspires people then that's great but you know if you're going to be making money or becoming a i don't know a, a multi-millionaire out of a song that's quote-unquote a protest song then let's hope that the money goes back into the community that you're singing about. Do you think that your art discipline and working in different disciplines gives you the freedom to explore these themes, to be more or less political, to to mix politics and pleasure in, in different ways? Is that important to you? I don't have a choice. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Because I am not a white woman that can transform and, evol- and, and, and go through an evolution because she now has pink hair, uh, or she's wearing different kinds of wigs, or she's a different person every album. I don't have the choice, right? Like, like if I, I, I like to make portraits, and I just make portraits. But because I'm the one behind the paintbrush, those portraits are now revolutionary. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to tell you. Like, I don't have a choice. Like, in my head, I'm like living my life, being cute. But to the world, I'm this strong LGBTQ brown black all the rain like all of the like I, I I'm not just I can't just be Lido I'm not like I'm like just interesting as an artist that's it you know like I love your introduction like this girl won this award this girl was nominated for this other award this girl is great period you know but in most places it's like activist defender of the freedoms of humanity she discovered a way to cure cancer she flies. And she does it in the name of the revolution of all those black people over there. Like, I don't want any of that. You know, it's just like I make art because I'm and, and I make music because I'm multi-talented, you know, and I choose to not write about, you know, the man didn't call me. Therefore, I'm going to cry. Therefore, I'm going to make a whole album about my ex-boyfriend, you know. And I wish that I had the patience for it, that I could live up to it. You know, I wish that I had discipline to wake up at four in the morning and be in a gym and 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 um, and like subscribe to, you know, what what they call mainstream beauty or whatever. I would love it. I would love it. I would be a multimillionaire and I don't have to worry about anything. You know what I mean? I'll be friends with Kim Kardashian and my life would be great. That's not what I do. You know, I am an artist. And when you become an artist, when you're an artist and not an entertainer, there's choices and there's things that you have to do. But in terms, but even if I was to only write about rainbows and flowers, I would still be, you know, deemed a revolutionary activist, so on and so on. 
I, I like how you said that you're just Lido and you're just having fun and being cute. Like it reminded me of, I, I saw a talk with uh, Buffy St. Marie one time and she was talking about how like when you're an indigenous artist and you talk about the indigenous experience, it's so heavy and like people expect it to be so heavy and everything's a learning moment or a teachable moment. And she was like, no, the, this is joyous stuff. We should be celebrating it. You know, the, the way to call attention to it is by making it seem like beautiful and wonderful and interesting, not like a homework assignment. So I think that that idea of just kind of being yourself and living kind of happily, or like you say, being cute, uh, feels really important. You know, it feels kind of political in a way. Yeah. So Lito, one last question, and this is one we put to all the guests and it's kind of a big question. I know, but what is pop music to you? Pop music is accessible. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. It's just accessible. Um, that's just what it is. It's just like, it's just less, uh, less fuss, I guess. I, I consider myself a pop artist. Yeah, I think I have a lot of uh, pop sensibilities into what I do. It's just that I feel like maybe in the early 2000s, pop was so popular. <laughs> a little redundance there, but I feel like, yeah, like it was so popular in like boy bands and girl bands and choreography, you know, it was like such a big deal that it instantly gets associated with like, oh, like those people, that's not real music, you know. But there's something really nice about just writing a song that that's instantly loved and, and, and understood that, I mean, a big part of me really envies that, you know, to be able to make something that is just so, so, so simple, so ready, you know, um, and, and I try to do that, you know, <laughs> it's just that once I get into the production of things, you know, then, you know, the project has to have 78 layers or 81 layers and we have to put, you know, strings and, and wings and all this stuff. Like I, I, I overcomplicate it because that's just me, you know, um, I'm, I'm a complicated person that has a lot of nuance and I think about things a little bit too much, but at the, at the core of it, I always understand that my songs can only be good if we're able to just like sing along without any instrumentation or any amplification for them to work. You know, like if I'm able to, you know, be in the kitchen with my kids and I start singing a song and they sing with me, that's a good song, you know, like just be around the fire and just like clap your hands and sing back and forth and have a call and response. That's a good song, you know. So I feel like pop in many ways figured it out. Like they just figure it out to make something that is like very easy, very accessible, very simple. Um, and I feel like I'd rather listen to um, some pop songs and some of the quote unquote, you know, experimental highbrow, you know, real music, you know, like I, I, I most of my friends are not even, uh, musicians, you know, like they're just like regular, regular people that have regular everyday problems. And once, you know, I step out and, you know, I hang out with my more like serious uh, friends that are like have dedicated their entire lives to the one instrument, you know, like their problems. I don't want to hear them. Don't want to hear them. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> and I love it, you know, like I love music, but it's just like, uh, like people that are 
quote unquote serious musicians, you know, for the most part, you know, they don't know how to take themselves lightly, you know, because there's this suffering with when it comes to music and even art. I don't really have a lot of friends that are that are visual artists that may. Yeah, I don't really <laughs> because the the problems, you know, it's just like I'm like, I've given birth twice. I don't want to know about you waking up in the middle of the night inside a painting. I don't I don't want to know about that. What you're what's wrong with you? Go to a therapist. I don't talk to me about this. That's scary. <laughs> but a lot of people do that, you know, and then you know, or like you go and like you're surrounded by artists and then it's just like a competition and who's more um who's got more of, of you know like whose vocabulary is vocabulary is wider and bigger and more interesting who uses the biggest words you know <laughs> boring <laughs> i don't want to do that i already went to school <laughs> so yeah it's just uh pop is great you don't have to deal with any of that snobbery in pop it's just like this is a cool song and we're i'm gonna dance to it so yeah long story short i love pop love it give me all of it well said Thanks again for taking the time, Lido. It was really great to chat. <laughs> Bye-bye. I am joined by returning champ, series producer Amanda Burt, the episode's director, Lisa Rideout, and the episode's writer, Del Cowie. Hello to all three of you. Hey, John. Hi. Hi, John. Hi, John. Wonderfully timed hellos all in sequence. Uh <laughs> So to start, I mean, this is a pretty heavy episode, maybe not heavy in execution, but in theme. You know, the concept of protest music is so broad. It's so varied. I guess this is a question for, for Del and Lisa. Can you walk me through your thinking behind this episode, how it changed and how you kind of devised a structure for such an unruly form as protest music? Yeah. Yeah. I can jump in. Um, Del and I got on the phone a week or two ago to actually put ourselves back. I think it was two years ago at this point, thinking about all the brainstorming that went on to make this episode happen. But yeah, like you said, um, it's such a big topic. So I think some of the things that helped us narrow it down was, you know, we had 44 minutes or uh, we we had time constraints, so we couldn't do the history of protests. We knew that right from the beginning. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that can come to mind when you think of protest music is Bob Dylan or some of these more dominant narratives that those stories have been told and it's not necessarily what we wanted to do. So uh, Del can speak to this a bit more, but I know one of the books that he, he was looking at at the beginning was 33, 33 Revolutions Per Minute, um, which was a book that looked at different songs. So I think quickly we came to this idea of looking at different songs and how, um, yeah, the sort of impact that they had on social movements, how they responded to different social movements, and the idea of really featuring artists from different time periods different genres and showcasing artists that people might not have seen before. It was really important to us. Yeah. Well, Del, can you tell me a bit, first of all, about that book, 33 revolutions per minute. What an amazing title, by the way. Uh, and how, how you kind of landed on the specific songs that the episode analyzes. Yeah, that's a good question. Those are good questions. Um, I mean, I think the book um, is by Dorian Linsky, um, who I believe is a writer for the guardian, a music writer for the guardian. Um, 
I hope that's right. And um, and basically, you know, I mean, I think it's a, it, you know, it has a lot of songs in it. And I mean, the thing about it though, I mean, there were a couple of songs in particular that stood out. I mean, obviously, all the songs in there were all classics in their own way. Um, I think there was a, there was a couple of entries that 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 I think that week um, in particular. I think the Billie Holiday entry in there. Well, um, I'm, I'm I mean, I know there was a lot of research, so I hope I'm not clouding and, and merging research from different places. But I do believe there was a Billie Holiday um, entry in there um, about strange fruit. Um, and um, I, I think that I think he in the book he did actually highlight the fact that it was you know one of the first kind of protest songs of the 20th century, and I think that really piqued our our interest in terms of kind of one of the songs in particular that we wanted to cover. Um, but you know, I mean, in terms of the other songs, I mean, some of it was you know, I mean, in the process, I mean, there were so many songs that we considered, so it wasn't um, it it wasn't to do with you know, I mean, I know that some people could look at the look at the episode and be like, "Hey, where's this song? Where's that song?" But the thing is, is I think what we wanted to look at, I think, in the end, was to look at how we could, like, you know, I think the question that's being asked is what you know, what can a song do? Um, and the thing is, is that we were looking at how the songs that we chose were ones that could could um, could be representative of movements in some way. Now, in the first couple seconds of the episode, there's that line. There's always people who abuse power, not just people on the right, but people on the left and people in the middle. Now, when you were in production, did you draw a distinction between, you know, the difference between a song that is political and a protest song? And how do you make that distinction? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question and one that I was thinking about. But, you know, I think a lot of the artists in our episode don't draw a distinction. Hosier in particular says you know, all music is political. And I think there's a really strong argument that, you know, all art is political. Um, So for me, at least, there wasn't a distinction between the two. It was showcasing artists that, you know, believed music was inherently political. And it's kind of our job as artists to respond to the social conditions that are around us, which, you know, can potentially make an episode like this really challenging if you see all music as political. Right. Everything's a protest song in that respect. Yeah. I mean, I think you could say all music is responding to social conditions around us, right? Like whether that's a love song or, you know, just ways that we see in different genres. So I think, you know, the the banner of a protest song or that definition of a protest song is a little bit challenging to deal with. And, you know, like Lido said before, she's just making music and other people are calling it political. And I think, you know, um, the hallucination, uh, who formerly known as Tribe Called Red, they say it's an act of protest to just be making music. Um, so yeah, that, that definition was a hard thing to deal with, to think about political music, because it depends who you are. And it's usually other people that put that label. I, I think about this a lot where it's like, yeah, we can think of political songs in some polemical way where it's like, this is about a specific issue or this is telling us to think about something or encouraging us to think about something a different way. But as you say, there's like love songs or bubblegum pop songs or songs that have nothing to do with that and encourage us to not think about that stuff, which is itself political viewed a certain way. Um, so, yeah, even even the songs that aren't about politics you know, there's the activism of the status quo, as they say, which is, I guess, something that uh, 
so much music and culture kind of upholds. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think something that was challenging for all of us making this episode was that, you know, these songs that we deem protest songs are almost inherently not trying to be pop songs. Like their aim is not to become these huge pop hits. Um, So we, you know, we had to kind of deal with that and figure out what to do. And it was for us just really focusing on different types of songs that, like Dal said, um, had an impact on social movements or came out of them. Now, I want to ask about the episode is kind of anchored around these shots of uh, singer-songwriter Hozier, who you mentioned, walking in slow-mo. Or is that just the speed at which he walks? Um, I think he, I think it's slow-mo. Oh, okay. Uh, can you just tell me about the functions of that sh- those shots in the episode and, you know, how you envision them kind of giving this, uh, I don't know, what, almost like a dreamy quality to him? What was the thinking there? Uh, yeah, I think so. Hosier, we knew that he would play a big role, I think, when we were trying to pursue him because he had the biggest chart topping protest song in this episode. And he also had Nina Cried Power, which was an homage to protest singers. So he's just really well versed in protest music. Um, so we thought he could act like a narrator throughout it. And I know there was a version where he wasn't there. And when we put him in, it kind of, it just gave it more of a personal feel, you know, like it just connected it to a human being that was really immersed in this type of music. Oftentimes discussing social issues, it can kind of be tricky to figure out how much you need to teach an audience when it comes to the history or the terminology or the context. How did you figure out how much context was required to approach this issue in the episode? And how do you attempt to get at situations with depth while also ensuring that, you know, they're accessible to someone who's just kind of turning this on? Del, why don't you take that one? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, I think to answer this one, I'm going to defer to Chuck D and Public Enemy in a way, because I think that they actually found a formula to do that in a, in a very compelling way. Um, I mean, the, you know, I think if you look at pub, the, the, the makeup of the group Public Enemy, you know, they have Flavor Flav, who Chuck D has openly said, you know, is, you know, is the, the, the levity, you know, the, the humorous kind of foil to his more serious approach. And, you know, um, that is basically how they packaged what they were doing um, so that he found a way to actually get the message across, which is, and then also in terms of that song, fight the power, it's just three words, very to the point, you know, and, and, and it's a slogan and that could be applied to not just that song. But um, I think later on in the episode, um, Sarah Marcus actually says the same phrase when she's talking about, you know, the right girl movement. Um, So, it's again, it, 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 um, but I think the other, the other to, to speak to, back to Public Enemy for a second, not only did they represent that in the song, in, in the balance between Chuck D and Flavor Flav, but in that video for Fight the Power, um, they, you know, the, the, the historical context does come through. Um, and, you know, all the, all the different uh, um, movements that they are referencing are, are kind of visually presented. So I think that's one of the reasons why Public Enemy became so um, so so compelling and were so so successful at what they were doing in terms of getting their message across was because of their knowledge of how to tap into all of those things. 
Right. And that song, even though it is so specific and talks about specific movements, it's true. You still hear it at protests and things like that. I mean, is there a way in which it's being stripped of context or is it one of those songs that can kind of transcend that context and become more broadly applicable? Um, well, no, I, I think it, it's still as powerful. And, and I think it's especially um, because of the fact that I think as the episode kind of talks about, you know, the, the, the context and Bill Stephanie, uh, Bill Stephanie, who was, who was talking um, in the episode gives you the context of what New York was like at the time. Um, and, you know, and there were lots of, you know, deaths of young black men that were happening at the time. And, you know, um, in New York, and that was the context of Yusuf, um, Yusuf, at the time, the death of Yusuf Falcons was very much, you know, a, a big issue in the, in the city of New York. But we fast forward 30, 30 plus years later, you know, I mean, I mean, we can name, you know, so many people, so many more black males who are kind of, and obviously were coming out of, you know, um, recognizing the year after George Floyd's death. So really it's just an ongoing thing. So the resonance is still there and it's just as powerful in my opinion. Yeah. And just one thing thinking, you know, that question made me think about a couple of things, but when you, something you asked Lito earlier in the podcast about, you know, uh, her music, once it gets more popular, does it diminish the message that might be in it? And that's sort of a question that we were asking a lot of people, including Chuck D um, throughout the episode and every single person said, of course, we want our song to be popular. We want our song to be heard. And for it to be maybe heard outside of context isn't really a problem because it'll get out to more people and more and more people will be able to absorb it. I mean, Chuck D was telling us that Fight the Power, you can hear it in protests. Ever since it came out, you would hear it in Eastern Europe. You're hearing it um maybe not when the wall was going down, but when the East was opening and all over the world, people were using the underlying message, if not directly speaking to the summer of police violence that he was specifically referring to, the idea of actually speaking truth to power and taking matters into your own hands to change the way things are is a message that's universal. And people still sing, chant, and play that song today, which we explore in the episode, but all of the other songs that we talk about, This Land is Your Land, um, Strange Fruit, the Milk song that brought on a different meaning at the women's marches um, in 2017. There's something about this intersection of popular music that it was either designed as a pop song or a song that somehow just hit a uh, a spark and was able to spread in a way that was bigger than it originally intended to that hearing a song without the, the protest context, I don't think diminishes it at all as a protest song. And none of the people that we talked to thought that either, which I have to say surprised me. I would think that, you know, going into this episode, I, you know, we're standing on the pop side of the fence. I thought this would be a kind of a heavy episode that we would be talking about serious issues, that we're talking about things that have happened over the last hundred years and how do artists um, engage with that. But the reality is that that's what artists have always done and it doesn't have to be a heavy thing. There's a way to actually connect and commune through music that doesn't 
mean that there's gatekeeping on how you're actually able to share it or uh, experience it. Right. And sometimes a, a good hook or something gets kind of stuck. And you, I always think about the two examples of sort of pseudo political songs that are always taken out of context is Born in the USA, which people use as like a pro American anthem, even though it's really the opposite. And then that Stevie Wonder song uh, about Martin Luther King, the happy birthday song, people just play that at a birthday. Nobody thinks about that it's a song about the life of Martin Luther King. Uh, well, maybe not no one, but it's a, it's a, it's a, almost a credit to the songwriting that it can just be totally loose of that context and become like a pop hit. Um, <laughs> now to talk about some of these contemporary issues, I mean, Dell, you mentioned George Floyd. The, this episode was in, I believe, post-production in uh, the summer of 2020 when there were a lot of protests around North America, around the world, uh, sort of spearheaded by Black Lives Matter that, well, I guess I'm wondering, how did it impact your thinking on the episode? Uh, how did it impact how the episode came together in post-production? And do you think that people might kind of watch it differently in, in light of this present context? Yeah, I mean, well, I would say just to speak about the edit, um, you know, we had always, Dell had written it, we had worked on it with the idea Black Lives Matter protests were already in our episode. We were opening with Fight the Power and um, showing its relevance right now. And we you know we had focused on Eric Gardner as well and the Black Lives Matter protests that were happening around that time to show that the song was still relevant. But with what was happening in um, 2020, we opened the edit back up to put images of the Black Lives Matter protests that were going on people with masks because, you know, we wanted them to be included. We wanted to make it as relevant as possible um, so that, you know, that was something that affected where the episode was at. And I would say in terms of how it's going to affect how the episode is watched, I think more people will watch. I don't necessarily it's going to change how people are watching, but uh, it seems to be that more people are interested in social issues, more people are engaged in protest movements. So it could help bring people to the episode. Or to the movements. Yeah, let's hope it actually brings them to the movements. But um, yeah, I, I don't know that necessarily it'll change how people watch. I think people that were already engaged in social issues and protests and the movements um, have always been interested in, in these topics and watching films that are political. So uh, I do think it will broaden people. Hopefully they'll watch the episode and hopefully they'll engage socially in meaningful ways. Well, I'm wondering, cause this is the one episode in the series that is sort of built around this question, you know, what can a song do? And I'm wondering if the three of you can kind of talk about the different people you spoke to and how they answered that question, because in the episode, people's views of it are not the same, right? I mean, some people think that music can be kind of a gateway to explore an issue. Some people think that artists can leverage their fame to call attention to things. And some people think that the job of an artist is to be a vigilant activist at all times. I mean, how do you kind of bring those differing opinions together without necessarily wanting to offer your own hard and fast answers? It's a good question. Um, I would say too, one of, I kind of went into it skeptical in terms of what a song could actually do. I kept, you know, I think I wrote it and put it on the wall in the edit suite. Like, 
what can a song do? You know, where we feel like there's all these really heavy social issues. People are being murdered. People, you know, don't have homes. So what's really the point of talking about music in the face of all of this? Uh, and I think at least for me, that was a good place to start because then talking to all of these artists, it really, you know, I came out with a very different perspective. And John, like you said, they all kind of answered the question in a different way. I think what united them, which is one of the messages in the film, is that the power of music is that it makes people feel less alone. And that's especially powerful when we're talking about people dealing with really, you know, tough social issues or circumstances. Um, so, you know, the different answers that they gave us um, answer what can a song do. Uh, they're included as different chapters in the film. And that really helped us structure the film in general. But yeah, I think... Um, I came away knowing a lot more from everyone. It was great to listen to people that are much smarter than I am in terms of the subject matter. And it was from their interviews that the structuring device of what can a song do really grew from. We didn't go in kind of thinking this. It came from what all the different artists told us um, in terms of what they thought their impact of music could be. Well, that's a good answer. Does anyone else want to take it on? I mean, I'm wondering about that idea. As you said, Lisa, you were kind of skeptical. I mean, was that skepticism shared? You know, I think even as music fans, we like to believe that, oh, music can be so powerful. But uh, maybe it's just me, but it's easy to get cynical about, is it not? I th I'd say just f from my point of view, it was really interesting. Like the group of people we ended up with as characters, as artists that wanted to be a part of this episode uh, obviously we always have a, a much longer list and we're looking at different songs that were the change makers and we have a, a dream list. And I'd say a lot of those people on the dream list are in this episode, but as we're going through it and trying to figure out well, what is a protest song, I mean, is it just as Lisa was saying before, Bob Dylan and the boomers just making it happen during Vietnam, or is it only, um, songs that you would hear at protests of people that are really politicized or can we look at it in a way where it's, uh, you know, it's a song perhaps in the mainstream that is speaking to the social issues of its day. That is perhaps an empowerment anthem that maybe the song itself, you wouldn't think of like in Hosher's case, you wouldn't think of take me to church as necessarily a political song until you saw the video, which was so political and so timely that that became a major pillar of the story that he was telling us in the show. So it really opened my eyes to what could be considered a protest song. And, you know, as Lita was saying earlier, like everything could be protest, everything can be pop. Like there's the genres are mixing as we change the way that we understand music, but also um, as we receive music, we're not just hearing these protest songs at marches. We're hearing them when, you know, radios were invented, suddenly folk music started getting out more, right? And as music videos came into play in the early 80s, suddenly we were able to see the artists that we admired show themselves in a different way that maybe wasn't the slick pop star way that was given to us in different ways. And now with social media, we understand music in a totally different way and we can reach more people and people can adopt it and change it. And 
zoom it around the world as soon as it's put out. So understanding that and not putting a heavy burden on the idea of what a protest song is, but realizing that people everywhere might handle a song differently, depending on what's happening in the world right then, what their personal experience is, what the experience around them is happening, um, really opened it up for me. And I think it's a cool, cool way. Is that the word? It's a cool way to see what political music is because, you know, music is art. Music is sharing ideas. And I think we're living in a time where everything is political in a good way. That every choice you make, even if it's a choice to do bubblegum pop or a choice to talk about anything other than what's going on in the streets, that's a political choice in itself. And, um, and hearing from these various artists, that's, I think, you know, they drive that point home. To add to what Amanda and, and Lisa have said, I think um, there is, well, Lisa pointed out um, the point about community or, com- or a communal sense of it. And I think that's really important. I think it's also an, an exact and, and organic, if that makes any sense, I, I find. I think it's something where you can't really predict what song is going to resonate with anyone or, or a group of people. Um, and I think that's where that communal kind of thing kind of comes in. It's just for whatever reason, certain songs speak to certain groups of people and those things kind of catch catch on. Um, and I guess one of those songs in more recent history that I, I'm thinking of, I guess, is All Right by Kendrick Lamar. Um, but um, that that because I find that that song was one that was, you know, at the time. Um, I, that I think it started to get pick, picked up, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was still an album track at the time. It definitely wasn't the first song in that particular album. And I think, um, and, I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure if you ask Kendrick Lamar at the time, he, he didn't necessarily create it. He didn't create it as a protest song, you know, specifically. And lyrically, it, do, it doesn't, it, it is not like, you know, but, but what it does do, the song does, it articulates a frustration and a level of, um, you know, a perseverance in the face of, you know, extraordinary circumstances. And I think for a lot of people who were, um, you know, who are on the front lines, it, it voiced kind of, it, it articulated that they're what they were feeling. And that's where that, that, that communal sense comes in. But also, like I said, it's also inexact because I think at the time the song came out, I think, you know, you're like, hey, it's a good beat, and then when I, you listen to what he's saying, oh, what? And then, and then it, it snowballs from there, and then it became something, you know, you know, at, that was bigger than the song itself in the end. Now I know we're tight on time, but just one last question, everyone's favorite question. Um, I'm wondering if Lisa, there was anything on the cutting room floor, any sort of ideas or even tidbits from interviews that. Uh, you kind of tried to work into the cut that you'd like to share with us now or Dell, anything that you were uh, thought was interesting, but you know, just, just couldn't make it fit in 44 minutes. So many things. Where do we start? No. Um, well, uh, definitely Lido, um, who was in our episode and I mean, her story is amazing and I think just a little too big. She should have her own documentary about all of that. Um, but like Del just said, um, Kendrick Lamar's All Right uh, was a song that we wanted to include. And 
you know, I, I think we had found footage of, I think it was the Black Lives Matter protest and they were singing all right. And we, we found a few instances of that. And I think it was, you know, one of those perfect examples of all the things that coalesce to make a song powerful and make it become part of a movement. Um, we couldn't though, but that's okay. Uh, one of the other things I would say as well that was really interesting was that Chuck D was given the Woody Guthrie Award um, for his music. So we did have these really interesting intersections between the artists and um, Alison Wolf, who was part of Bratmobile, you know, she talked to us a little bit about listening to Fight the Power growing up in high school. Um, so there were nice moments of connection between the artists, but the way we ended up editing the episode, which I think worked out really well in terms of a song, songs became chapters throughout it, just um, didn't allow us to do that. Yeah, um, I'm going to lean on the connections part of it. Here, <laughs> I'm not sure about cutting room floor. I mean, I think Lisa's highlighted most of the cutting room floor stuff. Um, I mean, I think it was, you know, like we, like we said, it's unfortunate that we couldn't, like, incorporate all of the... Um, the artists and, and all of their stories and, and you know, um, but I do think what the episode does have, and that's a testament to, you know, Lisa's work is, you know, uh, it, it base it does have that thread going through it where you do have a connections that, 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 you know, if they aren't as obvious as the ones that she just mentioned that are, you know, explicit, but there are, you know, that I think it does go through uh, various different movements and, even though we are going through genres and different artists and different places, um, you know, I mean, we get these moments of, um, you know, serendipity, if that makes any sense. I don't know. Maybe that's the wrong word here, but I, I mean, there, there one, there was one sec section in particular. I did like the Billy Bragg section where he kind of was, you know, obviously he's kind of coming from the folk tradition of, of being someone being obsessed with Woody Guthrie um, and, and um, the, you know, the, the folk movement, and then him being, you know, the, I think they call him the bard of barking, I think, in England. <laughs> but so he becomes like a, you know, a, a prominent person himself. But then he's also referring to not, it wasn't just Woody Guthrie. I was also listening to American soul music, or American R&B. Um, and like I said, there, there are these connections across genres. Um, the, the music basically, whether it's, you know, if it's speaking to humanity and just being it's just speaking to, you know, basic kind of respect for, you know, humanity that kind of cuts across genres and people and, you know, and anything to, to be honest with you. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Series producer, Amanda Burt, director, Lisa Rido and writer Del Cowie. Thanks again for popping by. This is Pop is a production by Banger Films. Amanda Burt is our series producer. Lisa Rideout is the director of this episode. Mike Munn is the editor of the episode. And Del Cowie is the writer. This is Pop the Podcast was produced by Melissa Vincent and Matt Charlton at Pigeon Row and engineered by Village Sound. Follow us on Instagram to stay up to date with all things This is Pop. 